Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. For the future, it's about how do you build in resiliency in the supply chain, also on the ocean side. So, so if you have another ever given that gets stuck in the Suez Canal, or if you have another issue with ports, major ports that are closing down, how do we manage this better? Right? I mean, is it about how we do we put in more ships on some of these uh, lines? So maybe it takes longer to bring it uh, from China to the U.S. or or from southern China to to Europe. Uh, is it about having more space in the ports? I think that's where the focus should be on how do we avoid ending up in this situation going forward. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Sharon Anchor for Bloomberg News, Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Today, we are pleased to welcome to Tea Leaves, Peter Borup. Peter is a seasoned shipping executive with nearly three decades of experience across Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Peter began his career with Maersk in Copenhagen and helped to build the company's businesses in South Korea and China. Most recently, Peter was the CEO of Norvik Shipping International based in Denmark and the UAE. Peter, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Peter, I thought I'd start with the news of the day when it comes to Americans buying consumer goods on their shelves, which is we have read now for months, we've heard it on the news that there are disruptions in the global supply chain, the supply chain of manufactured goods coming from places like India, China to our shores, the bottlenecks at our ports, the delicacy of the balance of uh, ships, trains, truckers, containers, just seems in some ways to be sort of impossibly complex. So, you know, you've spent a career decades in this business. When we were chatting earlier, we spoke extensively about your your time in shipping, manufacturing, and then the shipping of uh, dry goods. If you could just maybe in the simplest of terms, start us off by trying to break down the problem and whether there is a solution on the horizon, is there relief on the horizon for us uh, in this space? Well, that is really a a, a bit of a challenging uh, question because it encompasses so many different aspects of an industry that that you refer to as shipping industry. There's a lot more than just the ships, right? It's the ports, it's a, it's a hinterland logistics, it's the trains that comes into the ports and removes the containers and, and the same for the trucks. And that's in both ends of the supply chain. Um, I think what we, and I think I should probably uh, upfront uh, make a bit of a disclaimer that shipping also on the ocean side is very different things. So you have what I would call industrial shipping, which are the container ships that are running on schedule, almost like, like buses, uh, somewhat punctual and everything is about utilization and getting most people on board uh, and then reducing unit costs. And then you have tramper shipping on the other side where it's like taxis where you you take basically a voyage at a time and then you hope you end up somewhere where you have more options, right? What we're talking about now in, in, in today's world is the container world. I think it's worthwhile uh, when we look at the very good rates that they're, they're earning at the moment, just to remember that for the last 20 years, this has been a game of consolidation and of building bigger and larger and more expensive ships. 
Um, and at the same time, when you've been moving, uh, let's say, a, a 40-foot container from Shanghai to the U.S. West Coast, carrying uh, you know, probably about 2,000 pairs of sneakers for, for U.S.-based uh, sports companies, the value of these sneakers might be about a million dollars in that single container. And the freight rate would have been $1,500 to $2,000 for, for that ocean journey. And yet the counterpart would have negotiated for another $30 or $40 rebate. So it's, it's a business model that is extremely tuned to be low cost and save money just in order not to lose money on being in the business. Mm. And, and many of the companies have stayed in the business at sub-break-even levels or at break-even levels simply because they believe that consolidation would lead to profits at some point. So, so when we're looking at today's rates, it's the first time in a long time they're actually making money, right? But it also shows that in that value chain, the fine-tuning of it doesn't offer much resilience. So we've seen it with the pandemic in, in some of the major Chinese ports where slow working because there were not enough workers or complete, complete closures. We've seen it with the container ship the Ever Given and the Suez Canal. Once you have a delay of one ship in an important place, whether that's a port or a canal, it, it, it staggers up behind it. Mm-hmm. It is a chain, right? And it, it just takes a long time to, to mitigate that and to get out of it. And that's what mm-hmm. we're seeing now. Now, to your point on prices rising, we really have seen the Clarkson index of shipping costs reaching a 13-year high, and apparently container shipping is the star costing 14287 to haul a 40-foot steel box from China to Europe, which is up more than 500%. On a year earlier, then when you're talking about these costs now, actually finally reflecting what the market should have done in the beginning, that it was really stretched too thin. Do you expect these changes to last? I don't see the dynamics in that market having changed. I think the, the prices have come up uh, because of the disruptions that we have seen. I think it's it's uh, most most of the real experts, the people who know what's go what is going on in the ports and in the hinterland logistics, uh, they expect this to last another year, right? But a lot of that is simply about unwinding the delays. A good example is the port of Felixstowe, uh, which is the main import port in in the United Kingdom, and I think it's about forty five percent of the containers coming into the UK that comes through Felixstowe. Uh, major major line operator and my former employer Maersk recently. Said that they saw no point of calling Felix, so they would go to a European port instead because they couldn't unload the containers. There were not enough room on, on the terminal. And as a matter of fact, they were stacking the containers so much higher now that there were probably containers that they, they would find it hard to find, right? And this is in an industry where the average unloading or loading of a container, you have two minutes. And, and these are huge terminals, right? There, there are there are a lot of containers, so you need to know exactly where it is to do this in, in, in two minutes time span. Otherwise, you're just generating further delays, right? Peter, on the, I'm, I'm curious. You, there's a lot of focus on the breakdowns at the ports, as you were just, just mentioning there. If we were to try to focus on the shipping dimension of this, maybe I want to ask a question. Is there a problem in supply of ships and containers, or is that is that is that the wrong way to think about it? And is it more that the ships is is there a dimension where the ships and the containers are not in the right places at the right times because 
the flow has been disrupted and it's now so uneven with a variety of these choke points. How do we think about the shipping side in terms of supply and, and where it is? I, I mean, number one, I can I can assure you there is no shortage of ships and uh, and uh, probably not generally of containers either. I, I think this is really about uh, where are the bottlenecks. Uh, right now, they are in the ports. Uh, they are, and I'm not a hinterland logistics uh, expert, so I, I, I shall refrain from making too, uh, too broad uh, sweeping recommendations here. But it, it's pretty clear when, when you follow, for example, the port in, in, in Long Beach, that it's not just about getting the workers to work 24-7. It's also about getting the end receivers to work accordingly. So they will pick up their containers during the night or in the early morning hours. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very long value chain that has to change its habits in terms of how it works with its logistics. I think maybe not so much in container, but but I'll give you an example from from uh, from the part of the business that I've worked in for most of the time, which is uh, the tram industry or carrying bulk materials, where a useful way of, of understanding how freight rates develop was looking at utilization of ships. And utilization is, of course, how many days do you have fully loaded uh, or on hire, but it's also about how fast do you do you sail? I mean, if you're at full speed, which is 14 knots for these ships, um, you spend a lot of money on on, on fuel. If you decrease uh, if you decrease the speed by a couple of knots, you save maybe 50 percent of the fuel. But but full utilization you can affect by speeding up or slowing down. It's also about the time you spend waiting for the ports. And we had an example where we uh, we, we got thirty thousand dollars per day for a certain size of ship. And when we analyzed that, it was pretty evident that the basic demand for ships would be the equivalent of 15,000. But the over-utilization, over 90% utilization, uh, you saw an exponential change in freight rates. So, so, so what I'm trying to say here is that there's, there's probably a lot of upside in getting your ports to work if they are your bottleneck, right? A lot of the increase in freights will come from, from the bottlenecks where they're in ports or on railroad exp- uh, transportation or wherever they're at. So there's a lot of upside in, in smoothing that out. Hmm. So how should businesses then adjust their strategies in this environment, both from the shipper side of things and also from the clients trying to send their supplies? I think the focus is on the ports right now, but it's also in, in you know, what again, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a, a hinterland logistics expert, so I, I, I can't make, I don't want to make recommendations on how they should manage their, their, their train schedules or their truck schedules, but it's, it, it requires cooperation, right? Uh, so, so in this moment, it, it's within, it's between the clients and the ports and to some extent the shipping uh, companies, but they're already running their schedules pretty, pretty smoothly, right? And I, I, I doubt there's too much they can do now, but I think for the future, it's about how do you build in resiliency in the supply chain, also on the ocean side, so, so if you have another ever given that gets stuck in the Suez Canal, or if you have another issue with ports, major ports that are closing down, how do we manage this better, right? I mean, is it about how we, do we put in more ships on some of these uh, lines? So maybe it takes longer to bring it uh, from China to the US or, or from Southern China to, to Europe. Uh, is it about having more space in the ports? I mean, a lot of these issues are, are also about to, I mean, show me a port where, the neighbors want to see a bigger port, right? And obviously, if you're building it far, far away from a city, it's a lot easier to do, uh, which China has benefited from. But but if you're in, in, in the middle of Los Angeles or in, you're in the middle of Rotterdam, 
you know, there's very little appetite to add another refinery or add another major container terminal, right? Because there are people living next door. So that, that will be a challenge in building that resiliency. But, but that is, I think that's where the focus should be on. How do we avoid ending up in this situation going forward? We have seen a few ports here in the U.S. now start operations 24 hours a day. Have you seen any of the moves that governments or industry have made in recent months that you think could be a good support in sort of getting through this bottleneck period? No, but I think that's that's an important first step to to get the ports to work as many hours as it makes sense. But I'm, but 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 it's just important to understand they can't do it alone, right? Because there's no point in holding you know, Long Beach open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if the the railroads and the trucks can't get the containers out, right? So if if that added number of opening hours only translates into 300 more boxes going out in a week or in a day it's not enough, right? So there's more that has to be done. And I'm sure it's on its way. I think a lot of it is simply, you know, the bottlenecks and, and, and stacking up. I, some of the numbers I see in terms of, of increased demand is really there, right? But but the numbers I'm seeing so far, I don't think we have the whole truth yet, but 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 the numbers I'm seeing so far for container transportation are not massive increases um, or, you know, from last year on, until this year. We're talking in, in single-digit percentages, right? So I'm, I'm pretty certain that this is down to, to bottlenecks, and they are currently in the ports. And earlier in the year, they were in, in, in the blockade of a very important uh, shipping uh, canal in, mm-hmm. in, in the Suez. Right? Peter, if, if I'm following you correctly, I, what, what I think I hear you saying is that it's been a, a profitable period for the shipping companies. Is that right? That's correct. And do you see that continuing in the foreseeable future, you said earlier, this could go on for another year or so. So is the, is yeah, the no, outlook in this right. industry just exceptionally strong? Yeah, I, I would expect them to to continue to generate uh, good profits for as long as this lasts, right? But but there will be a time after that. I think what many of them, or the more sophisticated ones, will try to, to get longer-term contracts, not at prevailing levels, but they might offer their clients a rebate now, but then uh, a contract that lasts longer. Now, historically, uh, in, in the container shipping industry, there has been a tradition that these longer-term contracts were letters of intent, so they were not really enforceable, mm-hmm. but they were they were intense, right? Uh, if you're in some of the under the industries, uh, in, in the tanker markets or in the dry cargo markets, particularly maybe in the dry cargo markets, long-term contracts are enforceable and will be enforced, right? But you have a different dynamics, and you don't see it so much because they don't carry consumer products, but they obviously bring in all the raw material that becomes steel or aluminum and, and all the other stuff that goes into iPhones and laptops and the microwave ovens and whatever it is that we put on our shelves or in our pockets. And can we, just to follow up on that point, so on that side of the, the sort of manufacturing chain, right? So dry goods, as you talked about, going presumably to places like China, India, Vietnam manufacturing, where there are centers of gravity of manufacturing. From your vantage point, are you seeing the same types of challenges and disruptions on that part of the supply chain, you know, further upstream? I mean, the the freight rate scenario has been very similar, if no, I mean, it's even more cyclical and even more volatile than what you see in container shipping. Mm -hmm. You see delays because of rain in Australia on, on, on the coal and on the iron ore. And on coal, it might delay it on 
grains and fertilizer, it will delay these ships. It's a different industry. I mean, in, in, the, in container shipping, you spend a couple of hours at port and, and you leave on the minute. But if you arrive with one of these big bulk carriers and you're carrying logs or you're carrying wheat or fertilizer, you can wait for a long time. And waiting for 15, 20, 30 days is not unheard of. And if you didn't go back to the utilization I was referring to just before, that has an effect on, on freight rates. This has been a, a very strong year for, for, for freight rates, also in the bulk industry. Uh, China's stimulus package early on uh, uh, meant that there was a lot of stuff imported, uh, all sorts of different things. At the same time, you have China not buying coal from Australia, which used to be a rather important uh, piece of the volume for the bulk carriers. But they've enjoyed a very strong year and, and utilization is very high. What you also have, which is uh, you know, maybe particularly important, I think, for for, for all the other fleets, and, and but not for containers, is that, that you have, for the first time, really, really regulatory change looming, right? That shipping has priced itself of, of not adding too much CO2 and being relatively non-pollutant because of the volume it had, but it hasn't really done anything about improving what it could have improved. And, and the fuel that most container ships and most ships are burning is a residue of the refinery process. There are some regulations now on, on keeping the sulfur and the NOx content low, and that drives everybody crazy. It's being dragged out because different constituencies of ship owners have different interests. So the Europeans tend to accept, or the North Europeans tend to accept, that we want more environmental regulation. They feel they can handle it because it's complex and they have the sort of the organization for it. Many of their competitors in, in, in Asia and, and to some extent also in Southern Europe uh, just feel that the regulators should leave them a little bit alone. So the UN body, the International Maritime Organization coordinating this, have for almost 20 years not reached or given guidance on what are we going to do in the future, right? So many owners have on their own experimented with LNG because at least it's better than what we are burning now. But again, it's a transition, transitional fuel, right? Because it's still a, a, a carbon. Um, so, so there are experiments with ammonia, which seems to be probably the cleaner, uh, there are a lot of people who are now looking at, at a nuclear again, which we have never seen in commercial ships. It will take some time to develop. But what it does mean is that if you're buying an asset that's going to last you for 20, 25 years, and you expect to sell it at some point or resell it at some point, if you don't know what's going to be the prevailing fuel in 10 years, what are you going to do? And dual fuel use is, of course, a tested strategy from, from, from power plants on shore, but it's not a very well-rehearsed one for ships, right? So, so there's a there's a strong encouragement not to buy more ships, mm-hmm. which will benefit the freight rate levels that we're seeing now, particularly on uh, on on the bulker segment, because the container ships are really enough of them, right? But but the fact that they're not doing the usual uh, shooting themselves in the foot and in the groin when markets were good, you know, there there is ordering taking place, but it's it's um, it would probably have been on a different scale uh, had they known what kind of propulsion they'll be using going forward. That is so interesting. So where are we at right now in the state of regulation around the world then? Uh, I remember in 2004 where, where the, the discussion with IMO, which is for nation states, right? So industry has a seat and, and interest groups can have a seat too. But essentially the message to IMO was we need guidance now. We need to know what you want from us, whether it's a specific fuel or whether it's a particular set up KPIs that you want us to operate from. We're still waiting for that. We don't have it. So what we're seeing now is that the European Union 
is saying that they have waited for 20 years. They wanted this for 20 years too. They want guidance, and in the absence of that, they are going to provide it themselves. And I think they've been fairly ambitious, and I suspect that we're going to see that uh, they were not ambitious enough. We're also seeing that some of the major, and I would say consumer-facing shipping companies, people like Maersk, who are the closer we get to a consumer-facing company because they are so close to, to the company selling to consumers, that they've taken the lead on this. They say, well, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and we're going to build new ships now and we're going to see how it works. Uh, and they're going to be driven by, I think it's ammonia for these ships in, in particular. And of course, everybody is saying that there's not an, an, enough ammonia being produced in the world, but that's a transitional challenge, I think, right? Mm. So a number of owners are trying to experiment with this, but it, right now, the European Union seems to be driving the standards. And this is exactly what the, you know, a, a big, big part of the industry did not want because we don't want to be competing on standards. We want to be competing on quality and on price, right? But but if only the European Union sets a standard, it's only going to apply to ships that occasionally are in Europe, and then they will try to uh, to, to, to enforce it also for the yeah, area. And, and, and just for our, our listeners and viewers, so, so just some basic facts. The principal ship producers are... Just give us a quick, quick rundown. Okay, let's do a quick rundown. The, the yard capacity today is in Japan, Korea, and China. There's a little bit in Vietnam. It's not that competitive. The design capacity for for the bulk carriers would be in Japan, I would say. China is catching up. Uh, for large container ships, for the LNG ships, which are extremely complicated and sophisticated ships, the design capacity really is in Korea and to some extent in, in China. Uh, consolidation is taking place in all these areas. To if you make a yacht, they're state-owned in China. Uh, they are they they are quite good by now. Uh, the Koreans are probably still the best in terms of quality uh, for for the ship types that they're in. In terms of buying ships and controlling ships, and that's where it gets really funny, because in terms of owning ships, the Greeks are big, the Chinese are are quite sizable too, but they tend to have very old ships. The Japanese is a big is a big shipping commercial shipping nation too. The Greeks are huge in shipping, of course. Uh, they tend to trade slightly differently. Uh, and then you have the Scandinavians, and that's mostly the Danes that in most segments will control, not own, but control 25-30% of the world capacity. But that's through charter uh, arrangements, right? So you control the ship by leasing it from somebody else. That might very well be a Japanese owner or a Greek owner. So it's a rather confusing industry in that respect, or certainly from outsiders. There's been a tendency... Uh, for ship owners to really value their independence and that it's, compl- it's a completely free market, right? There are very, very few regulations that apply and those that does relate to, to safety of life at sea uh, and now a little bit of environmental regulation. But until 2001 and 9-11, most ship owners didn't really think about where they registered their ship, but it would be behind a corporate wheel in Liberia or Panama. So they're big flags, although the owners will sit somewhere else. Then the, the U.S. focus on tracing money set in. Uh, OPA 90, the pollution uh, legislation in the U.S. following the Exxon Valdez, also made it a lot harder to hide behind a corporate bill, but that only applied to tankers. 2001 probably cleaned up many shipping companies, so at least you ask yourself, we're big corporate, we're listed. Do we really need to do this? Why don't we just have one company and we put our ships in there? Because there's no damage limitation applicable anyway. So I think you now have an industry in two or three different speeds, right? So there's a very corporate element, mm. people who are very value-driven, who are exposed to capital markets. Uh, and then you have you have a lot of much smaller players, and many of them are still behind corporate wheels, right? 
just a follow-up question again, Peter. So if I were to take what you said about uh, the fact that the EU is now driving standards on fuel, which is not, I think I heard you say, not ideal, not preferred, and, and you have shipping owners that, that are acquiring ships, you know, some are European, but you said, you know, the Chinese are catching up, the Japanese are major. Am I right that the implication here is that what we could see in the future are, you know, highly uneven, uh, an uneven landscape where you've got, you know, some fleets of ships that are much more efficient, much more designed to reduce carbon footprint and others that just continue apace because they, they aren't touched by the way the regulation is unfolding? That's pretty much it. And it's also, it's not just about that, it's also about compliance, right? Uh, I, should, I should also maybe add that just to make it a little bit more confusing that, that the very large portion of the fleet owned by the Greeks and, and the Danes and Norwegians and the Germans, it may not be registered under a European flag. It could very well be under Singapore flag. Uh, so, so the ultimate ownership would be in Europe, but the ship is registered under Singapore flag, so they would not, unless they come into European waters, uh, have to comply with this regulation. So it's, it's a wonderfully complex world to regulate. So, so you can feel a little bit of sympathy for the IMO who has to do this, but that's also why it's so important to have an industry-wide and a global uh, approach to this, because a piecemeal uh, sub-regional approach uh, is only going to create more confusion. So let's talk a little bit about your experience and your background, because you're talking about how difficult it is for businesses to really have a long-term strategy when you don't even know what types of ships you will have to be using when you don't know where regulations are going. As a CEO of the of Norvig, as a former president of Lauritz and Bulgars, of working at Maersk as well, what were some of the big issues for you that you thought needed to be resolved, and you thought this would really make the industry better? I think in, in most of the jobs, it's about getting the right talent in. Uh, in a lot of countries, you um, shipping is not top of the list for young graduates. They want to go into investment banking or they want to save the world uh, by working for an NGO. That is so interesting because now we're hearing that perhaps it is because it's become such an important part of, you know, it's getting so much interest right now, given the state of the world, that perhaps shipping supply chain organization could be even more interesting than MBAs. That's what we're reporting on the news. I mean, that would be great. Uh, but there's a lot There's a lot to do, right? Um, so in the more mature shipping segments, which would be container, you're hiring specialists. So you want the best marketing guys, you want the best uh, AI people to, to join so you, you can benefit from that. That's where I think technology has found its way into shipping. In, in, in other industries, you, you just want to make sure you have a diversity of the very best. You want people with different backgrounds, different takes, different biases, uh, different upbringings. And you want managers who can bring out the best who knows that just because the Singaporean uh, lady sitting in the corner isn't saying anything doesn't mean she doesn't have an opinion about how you improve the business or the business model. So you have to find a way of bringing out the best in the different cultures you have in. But you've got to make sure that you have these different cultures because that's where the strength is in, in, in navigating. Well, it's essentially a trading platform, right? So you have, you have to be open to what happens in the world and act accordingly. I think a second issue that has, uh, I think has been particularly important recently, and it's always forgotten, is that the real challenge in shipping now is not the rates have come up. We deal with that quite handsomely as ship owners, obviously. But it really is that, that the pandemic has kept a lot of seafarers at sea 
for now up to two years, where their normal rotation would be six years, right? And you have whole economies. The Philippines stands, uh, stands out as an economy where I think 20, 25% of the foreign currency earnings comes from maids, nurses, and seafarers. And we are recruiting, and most shipping companies are recruiting in the Philippines because you then have access to the top 10% of a given generation. I mean, the smartest in a generation will go to sea because they can make a nice dollar income, right? You see something slightly similar in India. Uh, you have completely different challenges in, in Europe, but you still manage to get people into shipping, maybe not to sea. But a lot of these seafarers have not been caught out at sea for a long time, and that will lead to accidents and, and, and what have you because of fatigue. And in a few places, recently in the U.S. Gulf, uh, Houston, Rotterdam, a couple of other ports, Singapore now too, are offering free vaccines to seafarers. But in a lot of ports throughout the last two years, authorities have refused ships access and refused access to medical care or refused access to travel through their airports to go back home. So it's a disastrous situation. And, um, and that's a real issue. And related to that, what we've seen, in, in not amongst the containers, but in, in other parts of the industry, is that we've been so focused on how we take risk. So I would take shipping risk, but I would always hedge out uh, risk for fuel. I would uh, be very careful about what kind of currency risk I would take. I only have expenses in US dollars. I only want income in US dollars. And if I can't, if somebody insists on paying in something else, I would say no to the business unless I could hedge it, right? We would hedge out, you know, the cost of running the seafarers. So we would outsource technical management or even the management of the ships. So somebody else seated in Hong Kong or, or Korea or, or in the Philippines would maintain our ships for us, or we would even lease them. And what that has meant is also that for a lot of shipping companies in, in, in dry cargo in particular, there's a, the, the distance from, from the board uh, room to the bridge on the ship has grown enormously. And I guess you would have thought, I would have thought that the increased access to data uh, at sea would have made it easier to stay in touch with folks back home because for the first time in the last few years, it's actually available now. It's all run by satellites, right? But the costs have come down so much that an ordinary seafarer can talk to his, his sweetheart back in the Philippines or, or back in China. It has actually only increased the problems, right? Because you're now constantly being reminded that she's not home and why is she over at the neighbors and who is she seeing or... I mean, so it, there's a real issue around how do we, how do we as, as, as management and how do we as the shipping companies on shore stay closer to our crews, right? And I think the current situation around the pandemic has only made that question more important to find a solution to. These are, I mean, there are many other issues. Uh, I think you asked about strategy too. I think that's, that's what we do, right? And some companies are living basically from, from, from today to tomorrow, but the bigger companies can navigate difficult political landscapes you've got to take bets on where do you think the growth is going to be next uh, that would be there'll be one answer for the container industry there'll be a very different one from other parts of it can i pick up on that peter so i, I was thinking about the issue of in major aspects of production and manufacturing you know sh shifting from china to india vietnam other other places how do you think about that dynamic from a shipping perspective? And then, you know, coming back to our conversation at the, at the outset, how do you assess the port capacity, say, in India as we look into the future? Like what, just unpack this a little bit, if you will. 
you, 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 you're assuming I'm going to talk about container ships now, which is probably the most relevant also for, for, for a U.S. audience. Um, I mean, it, it depends on how long term you think, right? Because if you think really long term, what you would be looking for is, uh, is demography. Uh, where do you have a young population? Because you, you tend to be less wrong when you're looking at that. If you have a very young population, over a generation, you have two outcomes. You have civil strife or you have high economic growth. So if you can identify areas where you have that, you want to start looking, right? And, and, and that would qualify for India, the Middle East, and Africa at the moment, maybe Latin America a little bit too. But, but once you're there and once you see urbanization start taking place, uh, you know, the, the, the dirty old um, bulk areas will come in with the iron ore and the cement and, uh, and all you need for urbanization. And then you're going to start looking in, at industrialization, right? And that's when you, you're talking about the container ports. Um, I think in India, we, it, this is a story that has unfolded for 20 years, where every time you, you know, I went to India, they would, they would be sort of uh, looking uh, jealously at, at China and say, well, how can they do it? They, maybe it's not a great advantage to have democracy because they assess their needs in terms of infrastructure multiplied by four, and then they build that, right? So they have you know, a lot of buffer, uh, theoretically, in, 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 in railroad capacity, etc. India has always been somewhat challenged by that governance, that government not working as well and as smoothly and as with as long a time frame as the Chinese government, for example. But their companies, uh, many of them are absolutely outstanding project managers, right? And reliance comes to mind. What we've seen in many of the Indian ports is that you would have uh, private ports or private births coexist with uh, government or state-run births, and there's a huge difference in productivity. So what, what has been the game plan in India has been to build greenfield ports so you could get the, the water depth you want, so you can get the access you want or build your own railroad in if you want or if you can, and then build uh, build new ports. And there has been a couple of new ports in China on the container side, so that's coming up. Uh, I think India is, is really a, it's almost a story and a podcast onto itself because you have, you have completely different issues in terms of how the different states can trade with each other and how... Just, you know, you may have enough railroad material, but it's all stock in one state and right. you can't really get it out, right? So I think that's a very different issue. But but as, as, as a shipping company, you would be looking at what are you know, what kind of government do you have? How can you work with them? Uh, what is required? Is that something you're willing to do, uh, both in terms of price, but, but but it may also have, you know, reputational cost if you have to work in an environment where you're, you're forced, if you want to get things done, uh, to do things that you don't normally subscribe to in terms of corruption and whatever. And companies will stay out of economies because of that, obviously. Mm. I, I know Vietnam is, is you know, they, they built a lot of power plants and a lot of them has taken a long time to go online uh, simply because of issues in getting approvals and, and sometimes getting approvals twice. So it's, it's a pretty complex picture and you've got to look at what are you willing to risk? What, where do you feel you have the competencies to get it done? Mm. Uh, are you going to get in when everybody else has made their mistakes and then you're going to buy it cheap? Or do you think you, you're good enough to build these ports on your own and manage them and manage the local authorities and the local uh, and your neighbors too, right? Because that's, that's, that's another issue. So you were based in China and South Korea in the 90s with Maersk, right? That's right. Give us a little bit of your experience back then and how you think those markets have changed now. Yeah, I mean, Korea was fantastic. It was it was basically base camp for shipping, right? Because nobody wanted to take my phone calls unless they wanted to practice their English. And, and for me, it was, a, you know, it was a real exposure to Confucian Asia. So, so for me, it was fantastic. I learned to drink and sing uh, late at night and do my budgets in the morning. But 
but it, and it was a place where Maersk was not very well known, so I really had to prove myself. But but suddenly I had a friend, a Korean friend, and you know when you have a Korean friend, you have all his classmates too. And suddenly I was exotic right. and interesting, and I started getting business. And I I had to say I really I really don't know how to help you with this because you know, I don't even think I'm allowed to do it for my company. And it was a it was a place where you know, you 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 were friends, right? So so someone would call you. I'd get a very good freight rate. I'd be really really happy. And he would call it out. He was in really, it was really difficult for him because his boss had blamed him for paying too much. And that was a problem with the bill of lading. It was very, very difficult. And I would have to help him. So although I had an agreed rate, I would have to try to find a way of helping him out so he didn't lose face. And I knew that, you know, that was not just a double ledger here. And, you know, that we, we, we would report to the, uh, to the stock exchange. There was a third ledger here, which was about how do you help each other out and how do you, and on that one, I would score big on saving his face and he would owe me and vice versa, right? Uh, it was also, you know, every movie made in the 1980s about Japan would apply, right? Very hierarchical, uh, very gender, I mean, unequal society. And then, you know, you had the IMF crisis as I think it was called in Korea. And I came back a couple of years later and things had changed, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Young women would meet my gaze and they would talk to me and not be worried about their reputation. So I think it changed a lot. I think a lot of the corruption that was a huge fact of life also in shipping in, in Korea in the 1980s, sorry, the 1990s, that changed by tenders, by transparency, by a lot of things. I don't, I don't know exactly where it is today, it's, it's, um, but it's, it's, it's a major shipping economy, but mostly because of its shipyards, right? And, mm. and in 2012, I think 20% of the Korean GDP was generated by shipbuilding and related industries. That's a massive, massive risk to take right. as a country, I'd say, particularly when it then went downhill. China, I said for a couple of years, uh, it was at the point in time where, where China had sort of gotten a reputation for being the, uh, the Vietnam War for Harvard MBAs, right? Because everybody flocked there to make a killing and it turned out that it was just really, really, really difficult. And I came at a time where, and I was still working for, for Maersk at the time where the company looked at what can you do, right? And my first conversation was with our CFO at the time, and I wanted to make a budget. And I said, well, what, what is his tax rate? And he said, what do you want it to be? Uh, and I think that was pretty pretty illustrative of China at the time, right? Where everything was not forbidden and nothing was really expressly uh, <laughs> permitted either, right? Right. Uh, so you needed to navigate carefully. Our our CEO, who was the son of the founder, and he was uh, you know, a very uh, energetic young man uh, in his early 80s, came out and wanted to know why we didn't do more and why the companies that were there were there in the group and 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 quizzed all the other companies on why they were not in China yet. And I think he was one of the few, if not the only, foreign business leader to get meetings with President Jiang Zemin and Premier Chirongji. And he came away from there saying, and I was lucky enough to sit on the sidelines there, saying that we need... I believe in I believe in China. I believe in the skill and the competence of this company. But I also know that that uh, that we're going to be assessed on what we do and not on what we profess to believe in. So so my je- next job was actually to spend some of his money in building ships for him in China. So ordering there instead of in Japan or in Korea to demonstrate the companies and his personal faith in in China and its uh, its future. And that was quite obviously fascinating to be a part of to see how. A very long-term decision also led to to the company getting licenses and and, and probably being first amongst peers in how they navigated it in China and being close enough to policymakers and yet not so close that you would get in trouble. Right? 
Peter, do you think that the, the shipyards in China have the capacity in the coming decades to to dominate production of ships? I, I think I think the question has never been their capacity; it's been their quality. And and I think there are a couple of things you want to consider if you're entering into a shipbuilding contract. Number one, are they building ships at a design that you want that you think you can actually sell to a client afterwards? I mean, and there are all sorts of issues. What is the draft? I mean, the depth of the ship. How fast does it sail? How much uh, fuel does it burn? Uh, there are a lot of restrictions in many ports, particularly when you're into smaller ships. And 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 there are just a few shipyards that are really really good at designing ships to meet these requirements. These are on, on anything but the biggest ships, right? And the Japanese are very strong at that. I think the Chinese are getting there too. Then there's the quality of the ship you get. Uh, early on, China was very good at doing the steel work, uh, the coating of the tanks that takes a lot of manpower. Increasingly, they're building the most sophisticated ships, container ships, large container ships, and LNG ships. So I don't have, I don't have any doubt that they have the capacity in terms of yard space, but they also have the quality to build at, at, at the best level. I, I actually have no doubt about that. Then there are issues around uh, enforcement of contracts and refunding guarantees, i.e. can you get your money back if the ship is delayed or if it doesn't meet the specifications. Nobody in their right mind would accept anything but uh, but London arbitration and, and English law. There can be, uh, if you really want to, want to get into the legal uh, jargon, there can be issues in enforcing sometimes. I don't think it's an issue in China. So so, so the short answer is that they can certainly do it. Uh, but Korea will still be there too as a competitor, I think. Peter, thanks so much. Fantastic conversation. I have a sneaking suspicion we might need to invite you back in six months if we're still in the thickets here of supply chain disruption so you can help illuminate how close we are to the light at the end of the tunnel here. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Peter. And also thanks to our listeners. Uh, please be sure to rate and follow us on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you can access the full video of our conversation on YouTube as well and at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on Teen Leaks.